This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. On today's show, I speak with Alan Armstrong. He's president and CEO of Williams Companies. Williams is a natural gas gathering, processing, and pipeline company based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I wanted to talk to Alan because I've been watching him for a long time as a leader in the industry. And I think of him as quite traditional and stoic. But lately, I've been really uh, seeing a leader and a company that's, whose public face is evolving. And they're really stepping out uh, in areas that I think the oil and gas industry should be showing leadership, which is the clean energy future, us being civic, civic leaders in the time of uh, economic and health crisis. Um, and so I was delighted when Alan ag- agreed to join the show. Now, Alan became president and CEO in January of 2011. Um, in the time he's been CEO, Williams has expanded to touch roughly a third of all the natural gas volumes in the US. Now, before he became president and CEO, he has held so many other positions in the company that I'm not gonna tell you what they are, but you might be interested to know that he joined the company as an engineer in 1986. So I loved this conversation. I hope you um, enjoy it as much as I do. Uh, To learn more about uh, this work um, at Adam and Teen in our podcast, you can check out our website at energythinks. Now, here's my conversation with Alan Armstrong. Alan, welcome, and thank you for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here today. So I've been interested in what energy leadership looks like and how leadership is evolving to meet the challenges of this moment. And one thing that's really impressed me about you, Alan, and about Williams is very early in the pandemic, you stepped out as a civic leader. When the price of oil collapsed, a lot of companies, understandably, were really turning to their CapEx budgets and personnel workforce cuts, um, responding to this moment as the economic crisis that it is. Um, but And you had to be under the same kind of pressure, but in, instead of an external focus, a message on that, you responded to the health crisis. And you came out very early with a million dollar grant for COVID relief. So how, what, what was that like for you to really look at this differently? And, and how did you balance those pressures so that you could come out as a leader? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. First of all, you know, we are really blessed as Williams to have um, a very durable business model. And so because our business is primarily focused on the movement of volumes. And so before I take, you know, credit for being under the same pressure as everybody else, I will say that that we really do have a very durable and predictable business model. But we realize that because of that, then we've got some added responsibility to be able to be steady and supported through throughout those conditions. But the number one thing we took on, I would say immediately, was really the safety of our employees and the reliability of our systems. And I know that sounds like a very canned answer, but in reality, if you think about how essential natural gas service is to our country, not just for everybody always thinks that it was just as a heating fuel, but many of our industries are completely reliant on natural gas as a fuel. And obviously our uh, power generation, our electric power now today is becoming highly dependent on natural gas as a fuel source. And so when people think about essential services, they, they don't necessarily always include pipelines in that but they um, are very much, they very much are um, uh, focused on the things they see around them, but like, like always, the pipelines are kind of underground and nobody pays much attention. But we know that our employee base is really critical, particularly our control rooms and our operating employees in the field, that we had to keep them 
safe because we have a limited number uh, of employees of that situation. And we very quickly realized, boy, if we had an outbreak in one of our control rooms or in the areas where we are requiring people to work in close proximity. So the first thing we did was really take a look at that. Uh, Michael Dunn, our COO, did a fantastic job of really digging into that and spreading our employee base out, moving our, uh, distributing our control rooms so that we weren't relying on one particular uh, tight area for our employees to gather and to do their work. So that was the first thing we focused on. Second thing though, was um, looking around to what could we do for the communities because as we look, we realize this oil, the oil crisis, not just, not just related to the pandemic, but also with uh, OPEC plus coming out and the price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia, we saw that at a time where the industry was already really struggling to attract capital, it was really going to be difficult on a lot of the communities that we operate in where the jobs in those areas are very dependent on the oil and gas industry. And so when we saw this coming, we said we really need to make sure we're well prepared to, uh, to give in the communities and keep the communities that we operate in as healthy as we can. And so we, we started giving, I think we've given about $400,000 to date uh, in a number of different areas that, in the communities that we operate. But frankly, we really are reserving that because we know from the community standpoint, the worst is ahead of us in terms of the support that it would require, whether it's United Ways in an area, whether it's uh, food, one of the things that we're really working hard on is making sure that these local communities have adequate resources in the K through 12 education from a remote learning standpoint. And frankly, that this is, I, I would hope this is a, a good example of the way we think, so think about things. While on the one hand, we've got a crisis going on there in terms of the lack of um, readiness that our uh, schools have for remote learning on the one hand, it's a huge opportunity on the other, particularly for remote communities. And I've always been a big believer in that in remote communities that we've got to be able to find a better way to take advantage of the very best teachers. There's no reason that kids in remote communities shouldn't get exposure to the very best teachers. And so what a great opportunity on the K through 12 learning program to take advantage of this opportunity and where everybody now says, oh, we really, really need that. In the past, they would say, no, we got this. Now people are saying we really, really need this. And so we can really, I think, not just, um, you know, put salve on the wound here, so to speak, but we can really up the game of remote learning in these areas because there's a very receptive audience to that now. And so that's, that's an area where, you know, we'll continue to give because we know that the school systems, uh, the local communities really are not prepared for this, and we can't have a, we can't have take a hiatus on on teaching uh, and education in these areas. So, so we're excited to be able to to be in a position to be able to help, and we think it's really important. There's a, a few things you you brought up there that I think are really important to to, to emphasize that I'd like to one is that natural gas is invisible to most communities. We've done such a good job of producing it. People have no idea it's there until it's turned off and then it's a travesty. Um, but in that invisibility, our companies have historically been invisible as well. Um, and this kind of, um, I, th I think really stepping out to engage as leaders during a multi dimensional crisis, health, economic, at, at some point, maybe even, you know, mental health, and then, uh, and use it as an opportunity to not just lead, but really embed further into the community. I love the way you're thinking about this in the long term. I agree. The worst is still ahead of us. Um, but then you added in another dimension, which is innovate, which is use this time to make things better. So I, I love those ideas. Um, and I love that you brought out uh, education in that. So, so thank you. 
Um, let me pivot to another dimension of challenge we have in the US, which is racial equity and justice has really risen as a, a priority issue across the country, really in every corner. Um, and I think diversity, equity, inclusion are, are top challenges for all of us as business leaders. So I've been making the case uh, to the oil and gas industry that this is a critical comp component of how we lead into the future. Um, and that we need to embrace our roles individually as leaders, uh, as companies, in, um, in transforming ourselves, in transforming the way we work and think in these areas. I imagine Williams is not immune to this conversation, and I'm curious for a couple of things. How are, how's the company taking this on, and how, how are you thinking about it um, personally, and how you're engaging in your, in your own Often, I find this an often uncomfortable journey, but one that uh, we're going to be doing now, I think, for the rest of our careers. So what are your thoughts about this topic? Yeah, great. Well, I, I would say like all big changes that, that, are, um, that leaders have to take on, uh, and, and clearly there is change that needs to be taken on here, we really got to start and make sure that it is congruent with the long-term shareholders' interests. And so I think to get away from that is to walk out on, um, on unsupported land or an unsupported branch. And I think that, so we have to really stop and think about what, what is best for our shareholders long-term. And, and so I think starting with that, actually the picture gets pretty clear. If you're not focused on this quarter, but you really are focused on the perpetual shareholder and the long-term share, and when you hear the word sustainability, that's really what we ought to hear, right? It's not just about the environment. It is really about how well we can sustain and serve the perpetual shareholder. And um, so I would just say that I've had, a, had uh, some, some difficult learnings over the meaning of a perpetual shareholder versus an active shareholder over the last in my career and but it really did allow me to really focus my thinking around making sure that you, you keep the corporation focused on that and so when you when you put it in that lens you have to realize that that at williams our goal is to be the very best provider of natural gas infrastructure in space to do that We've got to be able to attract the best talent. We've also got to be able to retain the best talent. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to have my, the former CEO of Williams uh, named Steve Malcolm. And Steve retired at the very beginning in January 1 of 11. But he had quite a legacy during his uh, term of uh, really having the company focused on diversity and inclusion, kind of ahead of its time really in the energy space from my perspective. And one of the things that, that we took on during that time period was we realized that when we started to recruit from a lot of our hiring was through engineering schools and, and a lot of engineers are in, in our hiring path and in our leadership development path. And as we started looking at the colleges we were recruiting, there was not very diverse classes coming out of those engineering schools. And so 15 years ago, we got very focused on developing female and minority engineering programs at the schools that we were recruiting because we couldn't just sit and use that as an excuse forever, even though that really was kind of you know, the situation. And so we really started focusing on that. I, I will tell you, we did a great job on that front. And if, and if I look at the diversity of our intern program and the college recruits that we have coming in the door today, the diversity of that has just changed remarkably. And it's one of those things where, you know, you'd look at it today and you, you might think, well, that's pretty good. But if you look at it compared to where we were 15 years ago when we started on this mm -hmm. journey, it's remarkable how far we've come on that. And so now I would say um, this leaves me with the focus in, in my tenure as CEO of being more focused on making sure that we're retaining that diverse talent 
and it's becoming the leadership of tomorrow as well. And so that we've got good representation. And so, you know, I started this conversation with the focus on the perpetual shareholder and moved from that to saying we have to be the very best. Well, we have to be able to have a place where people come to work and they don't hold their nose. They're not, can't wait till they get out the door every day. It's gotta be a place where people want to give their best they want to bring their extra energy uh, to the job every day and their passion because they're excited about the company they work for and what it represents and so we've got to provide an environment that can not only attract retain but we've also got to have a place where people are really excited and bring their passion if we really want to be the very best and so that's where we are right now is fighting that issue frankly and we have a long ways to go. And I wouldn't sit here and tell you that, that we've got that conquered by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm really excited the platform and the legacy, frankly, that, that Steve Malcolm started in terms of having us prepared today to be able to do this in a systemic way, in a way that'll stick and not something that is just, you know, slotting at the latest fad, but really is making difference that will benefit shareholders and in our organization for years to come. Alan, you, you had quite a few things that I want to, um, that surprised me and that I want to uh, call out in a, in a way that emphasizes, I think, some leadership opportunities and lessons for our listeners. One, it surprised me that you tied this to the idea of the perpetual shareholder. So that's, uh, it's really powerful to take the idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion and align that vision with the mission or, or the, the bigger purpose of your organization because then it's um, embedded in a really deep, deep way. So that's something that I'm taking away from that. Um, and then I didn't know this, that you all started this journey 15 years ago. Um, and that says a lot because uh, you mentioned the, the words, the fat of the day. And I think there's a lot of um, concern among critics of the energy industry and our, our overall lack of diversity and inclusion culture that we might respond in the short term. And I think it's interesting that you're looking at this um, for, for the long term. And let me just ask, ask you one clarifying question. Do you think there's 15 years of more work to be done here? Um, or, or do you think we're uh, arriving? What's your, what's your assessment? Well, you know, I think when you think about the broader systemic racism that affects people's ability to get the uh, same level of education, to be treated as fairly, to be as comfortable as, as I've had the benefit of being at this company because it's really aligned with my values. That is going to continue to take a long time. And I, and I, you know, I feel the, the pent-up frustration and the energy around solving this problem right here, right now, that, that we're all experiencing in this environment right now. Um, and I have, you know, I have four kids that, that range from 20 to 30, and they have a lot of emotion and passion around this issue. Frankly, I'm very proud of that. But I, you know, continue to tell them, like, th this problem didn't occur in one day. And unfortunately, it's not going to solve itself in one day. But I am very enthused because I think the ball is starting to roll downhill. In other words, there's a lot of things that are in motion right now, including, including a younger generation that I truly believe is as close to colorblind as we could hope for uh, on this issue. And, and, it's, and it's becoming... You know, they, they are really intolerant of anything that smells like racism, any kind of injustice like that. They're very intolerant. So I think that's a, I think that's a lot of wind in our sails mm -hmm. in terms of being able to accelerate through this issue. So I'm hoping that it's not another 15 years because I do think we're making really good progress in accelerating the issue with the benefit of a younger generation that didn't grow up, you know, seeing all the bias and, and um, seeing that uh, from the generation ahead of them. So, so you know, I, I think people have to be very real about this. I think they can't, 
act like they, you know, they haven't ever seen this or it doesn't exist. I think that's the last thing that you can do to help solve this problem. Um, but, but I'm encouraged by the youth and, and their insistence on, on correcting this. And that's going to, if you go back to my comment about, you know, being focused on being the best, you caught, you, I can't imagine how you think you could be the best if you were running a company that uh, 20 through 30 year olds looked at it and thought, man, this is not a place where I want to put my energy and efforts into. It's, it's not, it is not moving along. You, you, you can't even think about being the best long term if you don't have a place where uh, people feel comfortable and excited about working. So uh, thank you. There's a, a couple more things I really um, and, am um, just learning from that answer. One is this idea that we do often say, well, we, you know, our recruiting pool looks like X, so therefore it's not our problem <laughs> that way that our employees are Y. So really engaging those pipelines over years and decades, I think is a really nice point that you made. And then the other is bringing in the millennial generation and generation Z. Uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. That wasn't on my mind as this, but, but in addition to having a diverse workforce that is thriving in your company as part of your success, having a millennial and Generation Z workforce that is passionate because they believe in the values and the inclusion work that the company is doing, is th those are just great points. So um, thanks for giving us some good examples of how and why companies can um, and I think must embrace these topics, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how far behind. Um, this is something I think we're all working on and it's the work of the rest of our, of our careers. Um, I'm gonna pivot again, Alan, um, because our audience is largely oil and gas leadership audience. Uh, we understand the importance of oil and gas. Um, but I've also been articulating that we have to share the ambitions of a public and we have to be able to articulate our role in a clean energy future, not as separate from oil and gas, but as totally integrated with oil and gas. Now, Williams has announced you're committing $400 million to clean energy through solar investment. I'm interested in hearing about um, how you made this decision, what it looks like on the ground. Um, and, and how you're thinking about it as part of the future. Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, you know, as, you, as you're very well aware, capital is precious in the energy space right now and, and, and will be, and, and I think, you know, people should consider it that way. So the, the needle that has to be threaded here, if you will, for these investment opportunities is, is pretty narrow. And so um, the things that make these kind of investments possible for Williams are, first of all, very generous uh, state and federal uh, tax credits. And so that, you know, just putting that out there, that these would not be happening without that. Um, and two, uh, having our own existing load. So these solar uh, facilities, the primary use of the power will be going to uh, drive our electric driven equipment at some of our big compressor and plants. And so it's not like we're making the power just to sell it on the grid. So it, you know, we've got to contain load. Third, we have our own land already there. So we're making use of our own land that's already there. So we always try to buy land around our facilities that give us a buffer to the public and so you know if we needed 10 acres for a site we might have 80 to 200 acres around a site just so and it's you're very well aware there in the Denver area that encroachment issue is a you know, big concern and so we're always we, we try to be considerate of that for our facilities that are located so the land comes with it and then as well, the transmit the high voltage transmission facilities, which usually are a big part of the expense around putting in a facility like that, we already have that because we were already bringing the power in 
uh, for to drive the electric drive equipment that we have. So a lot of fairly unique things, if you will, have to come together to, to make this happen. But it's very congruent with our belief that natural gas fire generation and renewables have to work together very closely in this environment, both to reduce emissions and, and to keep our uh, energy cost here in the U.S. at a reasonable level to where we can continue to keep jobs at home by having low-cost energy. And, and the fact is, is that in most of these areas where we're doing this, we get the automatic benefit without having to pay anything for it. We get the automatic benefit of having the reserve or the load-following power generation that the utilities have, have, have and it's in their rate base we have the ability to take advantage of that. So we can utilize intermittent power via solar with the benefit of having the backup of the, the grid. And so, you know, I, I think over time, I think that issue will change because I think the value of that load following generation will become more and more important as we have more intermittent power and more people taking advantage of it, frankly, just like we are in this case, where you know, we're looking to spend about $400 million all the way from there in the Denver area, all the way to uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and even into places like Alabama. So uh, really stretched out along our Transco pipeline, along the, the Eastern seaboard, as well as in places in the Rockies, like in Denver, where we have land have good access to uh, to the utility vehicle. Did you have any um, cultural challenges within the company uh, or the board or investors around getting into this business as being antithetical to being uh, an oil and gas company? Um, no, I would say our biggest challenge, and you know, Laura and Tom, our communications expert, could speak to this, but our biggest challenge has been making sure that the communications doesn't come out in a way where, where our effort is misunderstood, frankly, because right. immediately people hear, oh, well, Williams is, you know, going to go completely to renewables. And so this must mean they don't believe in the natural gas story. That couldn't be further from the truth. Um, but, but on the surface, you could write a story like that. And so, um, so that, that's probably been the biggest challenge in making sure that our messages are that, that we think there's, you know, um, a, a really promising way to go forward here in the U.S. between renewables and gas fire generation in a way that continues to lower our emissions here in the U.S. and continues to have low-cost reliable energy. And, and that, that second thing, the low-cost reliable energy, isn't really all that important to people until they don't have it. That's right. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the path that we've been on on the renewables front, the, and I, you know, I say this much to the credit of our, of our independent producers here in the U.S., but the reason that we've been able to invest so heavily in renewables here in the U.S. and make such great progress on utilization of renewables has frankly largely been on the backs of very low-priced natural gas. Because people's mm -hmm. uh, utility bills have been able to be kept low uh, as, a, as we've transitioned and learned to get better and better at utilization of renewables. But we've got to, we, we can't um, ignore in a way that we don't continue our investments uh, aligned with the economics of having low cost reliable power. And to do that, we're going to have to continue to invest in gas fire generation to complement the intermittent renewal. So we're excited to be a part of that. We think it's a great story for the U.S. despite all the very negative and harsh positions that people take around that. But frankly, I think despite all that, we're getting to a pretty good place where we are, we do have a lot of renewables, uh, intermittent power online, and we're using gas more and more. In fact, here for the last uh, week or so, we've been setting record levels of uh, gas transmission into power generation facilities and hitting all-time record. 
even though if you look at the headlines, the headlines would say, well, natural gas demand is down because of COVID. Well, it, it isn't on our books. Um, and so the thing that's down has been LNG export out of the U.S. has, has mm -hmm. drifted down since the first of the year because of a very warm winter and some industrial demand loss in Europe is what's driven LNG exports. But our U.S. demand for natural gas has actually remained very strong. And we, you know, we track that each and every day as Williams. And so, um, so the, you know, that's been a really positive story. And I think there's so much to be done as, as players in the energy space of reducing emissions. And if mm -hmm. our focus could be turned to reducing emissions and not to stopping fossil fuels, right? Right. There's well, so much opportunity around that. Absolutely, and and the the one of the things I love about this uh, effort, this uh, four hundred million dollar investment into solar on behalf of Williams, is that at this point I put the the burden on the bridge building on the oil and gas industry. Um, not everyone will agree with that, but but at this moment I think we have the real opportunity to build those bridges. And what I love about this effort is that. It changes the story from from us versus them, maybe fossils versus mm -hmm. renewables, mm -hmm. or keep it in the ground versus um, reliable, uh, affordable energy, to a a, a co leadership, a mingling of these ideas brought to you by the oil and gas industry. So I'm going to continue to watch this effort um, with a lot of interest, and I think it's this kind of creative thinking that's also in line with your economic and shareholder goals um, that uh, I'll continue to watch this with interest. One last question about this, just to return to our, our idea of your younger employees and, and their passion for the company. Has there been any reaction from your, uh, your workforce about this? Are they excited, resistant, uh, maybe wait, wait and see? Yeah, you know, it, that's a great question. And um, actually, at the first of the year, we, you know, gas prices were low. We weren't getting the benefit of a uh, cold winter in terms of gas demand. And so as a management team, we looked around and said, hey, you know, let's make sure that we are going to be super nimble with the changes ahead. So we, we didn't you know, we, it's not like we were sitting there forecasting uh, COVID or, or a collapse in the oil price, but we did realize just on the gas side that with the super low prices, we were going to see less development going on in some of the big gas basins that we serve. And so we said, let's, let's think about, and, and we'd just gone through last year ahead of everybody else, we, we reduced our workforce through a voluntary separation program by at 8%. And we didn't have any interest in doing that again, but we did realize a lot of the work was going to slow down in terms of the growth and some of our bases. And so we said, how do we make sure that we've got, we've got all this great talent. We've got a lot of people really enthused about where we're going, coming out of the reduction in force. Let's not turn this into another drumming of we're going to have another reduction. We're going to let's make sure that we find a good place to utilize our resources that would have been focused on connecting a lot of wells and, and serving our customers. And so it really came out of that discussion where we said, let's, let's really stop and think about what we can do differently and where there might be some opportunities that got handed over to some of the, younger leadership in the company and this is one of the ideas they came up with and so and the and the energy that's come behind it has been powerful i mean the amount of young people wanting to work on this, these projects is really impressive and it's kind of opened my eyes a little bit about what a hunger there is to to be aligned with with that kind of effort Oh, that's so interesting and exciting. And it makes me have to plug a report that we're about to put out on millennials and the oil and gas workforce and how millennials are facing this quandary in their peer group of working for 
uh, a fuel of the past. And what you're doing is creating a pathway for them to work for the energy of the future. So that's really neat. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. And, and um, I think we all are in uncharted territory. So let's continue, let's continue to, to learn, to learn from that. Um, last work thing I want to ask you about, Alan, is you and I sit on the National Petroleum Council together. This for the audience is a advisory board to the Secretary of Energy. You played a huge role in leading an infrastructure study that rolled out at the end of last year. Now, you may or may not know this, but I know this from because of where I, I sit out in the world that the public was really, really surprised when, when this report acknowledged climate change in the introduction, acknowledged the twin challenges of reducing emissions and meeting uh, infrastructure needs as we've talked about through this. Um, and I think it helped actually create, again, some bridge, some bridges about talking about the need for infrastructure and that this infrastructure isn't in antithesis to need to address um, emissions reductions. Was that a, a, a big lift to, to get the National Petroleum Council able to talk about that? Um, and, and what's your, you know, what's your thinking now that you're done with that report? Yeah, you know, the, the, and at the same time that that debate, was, and just to kind of, to maybe start with the way that that kind of came together was, um, we had a, a steering committee and then we had a the uh, working group that was headed up by uh, Amy Shank here from Williams, who just did a, who deserves all the credit, frankly, and, and her and uh, a lot of staff, Mark Jebbia uh, here at Williams. A lot of I hate starting naming names, but there's so many. They were amazing. I got to work that, with them. That, yeah, agreed. Did a great job, <laughs> and and so really the credit goes there, but. The issue that eventually got elevated, which wound up being quite a, a fascinating debate at the steering committee, so at, at the level of the effort that I was working, became, can we come out and say that we need a legislation for carbon policy? And you can imagine that was a, you know, that was a hot potato around Spicy, spicy yeah. conversation. And, and, but man, did we have great leaders on the steering committee. And, you know, I credit people like Ryan Lance was on there, uh, who I think is a great leader in the industry. Uh, Greg Garland from T66, who, who has, you know, that, that's a huge issue for a refiner. Um, and mm -hmm. um, so... A lot of, lot of really thoughtful, big leaders in the industry that were part of the steering committee that wrestled with this issue. But the way it was kind of framed by the subcommittee and, and, and the way it was brought forward to the steering committee was, look, we've got this elephant in the room out here in terms of getting infrastructure permitted. And people's fight against permitting pipelines has very little to do with the pipeline and everything to do with climate change and carbon emissions. And until there is a comprehensive address of this public concern for carbon emissions, the only place that you're leaving people to fight is at the pipeline level. So until, we, until this broader public concern is addressed in terms of carbon emissions, we can expect to consider continue to see a fight on every single front as it relates to permanent pipelines. And I'd say that's still kind of where we are as, you know, as practically as a country, but, but I thought I was very proud of the steering committee and the entire NPC uh, uh, effort on this because we did, I think, wrestle with a really tough issue and, get, and gain support from a lot of, you know, very conservative independent producers around the National Petroleum Council to support us coming out and saying that we really thought we needed a uh, legislative approach to tackling carbon emissions. But importantly, and this is, you know, this gets forgot, we also uh, clarified that along with that and in parallel with that, we need major reforms on the NEPA policy, which is really what today causes so many of our pipeline cases to be in the courts 
because they're really NEPA today as it's interpreted and being utilized today doesn't provide swim lanes for the various agencies and it has people having to take on issues that they are not experts in um, and and we really need reform at the federal government level on having clarity about the responsibilities of the various agencies when it comes to uh, reviewing pipelines. We are not saying that we need lighter regulation on pipeline. We are simply saying there needs to be much better clarity uh, to address that. But this issue of the public concern is not going to be addressed mm -hmm. if, 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 or I should say this, it's going to continue to come out as fights against every single piece of energy infrastructure if people do not believe that's being addressed at a comprehensive level uh, on a legislative basis. So I thought the report was fantastic. Uh, it's just amazing to me what a great reference document it is on one hand, let alone this more difficult, you know, issue that it spoke to. But um, boy, what a tremendous amount of work by so many people bringing that together. And at the end of the day, that really was the key issue the steering committee dealt with was this polarity, if you will, between the public opposition to carbon. And, you know, thank goodness to the, to the working teams to say, look, we can work on these, these other minute policy issues all day long, but the elephant in the room is the mm -hmm. public's concern around climate change. And if that's not gonna be addressed comprehensively, the rest of this is not gonna make progress. Agreed, and it's such a great point because obviously this summer, we see that this challenge is alive and well, and um, it provides, I think, some motivation for all of us in the oil and gas industry to be engaging head on in this conversation. Like you said, it's not about one pipeline battle, it's about a public that's confident that we're a uh, part of reducing emissions while we're bringing them affordable, reliable energy. So I really agree. Alan, I'd like to put you on the spot that we, that our listeners can get to know you a little bit. So I'm wondering, uh, you mentioned you have four kids. I'm wondering how you and your family are faring during this pandemic and really strange time that we find ourselves in. Yeah, well, um, doing very well. Probably the biggest challenge that we've encountered in that regard is our son goes to school in Australia. And so Australia has been locked down. Um, so no, no U.S. citizens are coming in and he's on a student visa. So if he wants to keep a student visa, he can't come out and get back in. So, so that's been a little uh, difficult on the, on the home front to have him gone for such not oh, so hard. extended period. So, but you know, I mean, I, I would just say the good news about that for me is that it really gives me a better understanding of the fact that people deal with that kind of issue all the time in terms of immigrants to the U.S., people coming to school here, the difficulties with visas, and the challenge for um, uh, that that has come to a lot of people in terms of barriers to seeing their loved ones, and you know we all experience that with 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 the elderly um, and that and that lockdown. But you know it's in a lot of other areas as well. So I would just say it's taught me to be a little more empathetic to that issue, which is not always one of my better uh, um, characters characteristics and so it's been helpful in that regard um, and then I have two my two oldest daughters are in the energy industry one's in Midland um, and one's here in Tulsa both both in the energy industry and I've seen the you know dramatic change uh, this having on their career and they've never seen anything like this and so they're kind of looking at me you know kind of big eyed thinking are, are we going to make it through this or not right and so so that's so that's more you know associated with both covid the lack of demand and the, the oil crisis but certainly very real to me the impact that it's having on uh people starting their careers in the energy industry and wondering if they've made the right move to get into the energy 
industry or not. So, so I'd say both of those items are kind of keeping it very real and very sober for me in terms of you know what people are facing. You have unique insights. You have your own millennial generation Z energy <laughs> workforce in the family. You don't get any break. You go home and you're just going to hear some more. Boy, that, there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I just want to encourage Alan's kids to, to email me and let me know what you think about this. Um, uh, is there anything that you're doing di that you did differently during the pandemic? The, uh, the things I've learned, um, I would say one, I've never slept in my same, on my same pillow for so many nights in a row, maybe ever, but certainly not in my career. So that's been, that's been remarkably refreshing personally, I can tell you just in terms of the, the better energy and the ability to kind of have a better routine around, you know, fitness and taking care of yourself and things like that. So I would say, personally it's been a really big positive the piece that i and and i think learning how much we can do remotely and forcing ourselves to stretch to do remotely is a huge positive for the industry i think that we'll take advantage i i would tell you and i have this conversation with leaders all the time i am not very clear on what our level of productivity is in the organization. I have no doubt that our ability to do the very uh, binary efforts of filling out a financial statement, uh, putting our reports in, running the business day to day, I have no doubt that we can be very effective at that. What I'm not perfectly clear on is how much um, new idea generation is coming Cross. In other words, that water cooler conversation, which is, you know, really dates me, frankly, but, um, but the, the conversations that happen in and around a meeting where the intent of the meeting gets stretched beyond as you're leaving a meeting or entering a meeting. And that kind of thing, it seems like, is certainly limited. The relationship building and the, the fun of working with people you know, is certainly uh, going to be stretched, I think. So I, that, that's yet to be determined, I think, in my mind, as to kind of the edges of what we do and how, mu how much new idea generation will continue to get in this environment. That's great. Thank you. And la last question to end on an optimistic note. Um, what are you most excited about um, in the future, both personally and professionally? What are some things you're looking forward to as we, as we head forward into the unknown? Yeah, I, I would just say, you know, professionally, uh, on the one hand, this issue of our narrative and, and energy and fossil fuels, that narrative is really daunting and we've got to do a much better job as an industry of, of, educating people on the facts and and really doing a much better job of being um, advocates for our own industry and the benefits it can bring so that that feels very daunting to me sometimes um, but the the great thing is from a Williams standpoint I think we've been on this journey it's very genuine for us to take these issues on and to be ourselves and to, to think positively about the benefits that we can bring. The organization is running extremely well right now, um, thanks to a great leadership team that I get to work with that makes my job fun and energizes me instead of drains me. And so I would tell you my, my, one of my favorite things that, about my work these days is the team I get to work with. Um, and, and this team is capable of taking on about anything. So I feel very good about that. As daunting as it is, I, I think a team of our caliber uh, deserves some good challenges. And so, so I'm excited that we have those. Um, and then I would say, and, and personally as well, I would say I, you know, I really enjoy the folks I work with um, and think that the, despite all the issues that, that we have as a nation right now, um, 
we've got a great future in front of us because we do have uh, low cost affordable energy. We're going to continue to take advantage of that. And, uh, and I'm really excited to see what the future holds for our country. Um, despite all the things that are in our way right now, we're learning a lot through this pandemic. And I think it's going to unleash some benefit to the unconnected. In other words, the amount of connectivity that we're getting in remote areas, for instance, as I started the conversation around education, uh, that is really going to pay big promise for us as we learn to take advantage of our ability to connect remotely and learn remotely. Yeah, I would say, you know, on the personal front, it's always hard, I think, to uh, segregate the personal and professional life when you're a CEO, whether you like that or not. Um, but uh, I do, I really do enjoy the organization I get to work with. I'm excited about getting to lead in, in this kind of environment. And I think uh, personally, I'm really excited to see the lessons that have been learned through this pandemic um, be utilized for the betterment of, uh, of the U.S. and really, and really the world and being able to connect people that historically have been remote. So said another way, if you think about how many barriers we've let exist because we're not uh, connected, there's really not a good excuse for that as we learn to connect remotely more effectively. Alan, thanks so much. You've been such a great guest for our listeners. I only plan to interview Alan for 25 minutes, but this was such a great conversation. And Alan, you've been really generous with your time. Good. Well, I'm glad keep it going. You bet. I'm sure you can you can clip that up a little bit and make it more succinct. So, well, but I really did. I really did enjoy the conversation and, and appreciate the great questions. And I look forward to getting to meet you in person one of these days. So, thank uh, you. I do yeah, too. That'll, that'll um, symbolize progress on many fronts. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Alan Armstrong for taking the time to share his views with us and being willing to, to answer um, even my personal questions. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I want to know what you thought about what you've heard today. So please uh, visit our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and let me know. You can subscribe to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and give us a rating. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.